This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast, and I am your host for this week's episode, Paul Jaceley, filling in for the uncanny Mike Rappin as he enjoys a much-deserved relaxing honeymoon vacation in Japan. Uh, we're here holding the fort down with two uh, fantastic comic book friends, Nick White. Hey. And Renee Rodriguez. I wouldn't go so far as fantastic, but hey. You know, you're your you're own harshest critic, Renee. I say you're fantastic, so accept it. All right. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> you're, in fact, you're Mr. Fantastic in my book. Um, uh-huh. Renee Rodriguez and Reed Richards, C-R-R-R-R. See, maybe there's a connection there. All right. We're establishing. It's canon now. That's, that's, that, that's canon. IRCB canon. So, uh Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Um, things are a bit loose, of course. Mike's not here. The inmates are running the asylum, so to speak. But as the host, with that weight, that responsibility, I have one, well, two questions to ask both of you. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Renee. Uh, comic books have been great, honestly. Uh, I've been reading way too much because I f- forgot that I was subscribed to uh, Kindle Unlimited. And uh, so there's just a bunch of free stuff just on there. Um, Also, that does explain that charge that I keep getting. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, two birds, two birds, one tablet. And uh, so I was reading a lot, but then I also just happened to go to uh, Vault of Midnight yesterday when I was in Grand Rapids. So I picked up um, Monster Volume 4 by uh, Naoki Urasawa, and the series is so good. Uh, it's super intense, but it is so good. And I really only get one volume at a time, which feels like a mistake. But at the same time, my bank account is probably grateful that I didn't just buy the whole series in one <laughs> dump. Um, uh, how many volumes are we talking for this manga? I mean, upward of three digits? Or no, 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 no. I, I think <laughs> okay. it's actually only... I don't even think it goes up to 10. I could be wrong. Oh, okay. Um, sure. So it's, it's not that... I mean, the volumes are pretty big. Um, okay, I see. So they kind of... The volumes kind of have that like two in one, three in one feel, but it is just like this is how big the volume is, and it's um, so. I mean, it's a good it's a good read, but the series is so good that when you get done with the volume, you're like, ah, I should have grabbed another one. It's just I want to know because it's just this one overarching story. They aren't just like it's not like little throwaway like one chapters. Like everything is connected to this bigger story, and it's really kind of amp it up. And I'm only on volume four. I don't even think I'm halfway through the series. Uh, I think I'm almost there, but it's a thing. And then the uh, the other book I read was uh, the newest volume of Fire Force uh, by Atsushi Okubo. And I really got into the series because I was curious because it's about like firefighters with special powers. And I was like, well, what kind of a powers would a firefighter have? Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's the whole series is a riot but like in a really like a good riot like okay, like a right. you know riot at a not a scary prison yeah riot. no riot like right. at a punk right. show not <laughs> okay. like riot in the streets <laughs> um and it's from the it's from the creator of soul eater um if you guys have heard of that or said the anime was really big um a while ago and um, and that's a good series so this is the same writer and it's been a really fun story it's it really doesn't stop. It just kind of hits the ground running and then just jumps into the sky with a fiery burst and says, bring it on. Uh, so it's uh, it's been fun. And then also when I picked up the, the uh, volume yesterday, uh, the clerk and I had a nice conversation about it. And I, I think we oh, I think nice. we became friends, you know, even if just for that <laughs> moment. So Sometimes that's the most important connection you can make is, you know, friend, friendship over a comic book purchase. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Maybe I totally nice. missed this part, Renee, but what's the, like, 20-second summary of this book? Oh, so Monster is about a doctor that, um, he's a Japanese doctor who li- lives in Germany um, during, uh, when it separated into East and West uh, Berlin, or East and West Germany, sorry, and he is trying to make his way up into this, in this very prestigious hospital when he has to make the choice between saving a young boy or a, uh, politician and he decides to save the young boy instead and then that young boy grows up to be a serial killer and now the doctor is trying to fix his mistake yeah sorry the moment you said making making his way all i could think of was um uh, the vanessa carlton song um a thousand (laughs) miles (laughs) but um 
Yeah, okay. I, I think I think Mike's raved about this book before. I mean, most definitely. Yeah. Um, I think he's read the whole series. I don't remember. I'd have to talk to him about it. But um, it's really good. It's a super... It's super good. Lots of really interesting tie-ins to the time as well. Okay. Hmm. Fans of history take note. Or doctors. <laughs> Fans of doctors take yeah, note. Yeah, <laughs> if you're into neuroscience or uh, criminology or even uh, child uh, psychology, this is the book for you. Also, if you're uh, into um, the actual definition, like the whole argument of is there actually evil or is it just something that we've fictitiously created – so, I mean, that's all that. This is a really good Renee, story. I don't need these serious <laughs> things in my comic books. <laughs> my comic yeah. books are just... No, I'm just kidding. That's, I, was, that, I hate that argument's <laughs> bullshit. I was, reading, <laughs> I was reading this last night, and I just had this thought. I was like... Because I, I know that there's a live-action TV series that they made for it in Japan, or maybe it was in Korea. I don't remember. But I know that there's a live-action series or movie for it, and they had the anime, and I've actually seen like people talk about it, and they're like, even though those adaptations are really good they really don't compare to the pacing and the style of the manga Hmm. and like as i was flipping through it i was like i it would be really hard to try and adapt this to get that same kind of eerie feeling that is just throughout the series and so i highly recommend it it's super it's super good I thought the it adaptations normally like, like knock it out of the park, Renee. I mean, don't don't people love that Netflix Death Note movie? Like, uh, I will literally um, go over to your house and physically fight you. <laughs> Guys, we're gonna have to take a break. Renee's coming over here right now. How dare yeah, we'll, you? We'll rejoin. This is why we'll rejoin the podcast while the fight is in progress. This is why I'm so. making you read Death Note, Nick. <laughs> Uh, Nick, um, let's get off that topic before it comes to um, blows, you know, uh, <laughs> blows, figurative or literal. Yeah. Uh, what have you been reading, Nick? How have you been? Things have been okay. Um, I feel like Michigan finally figured out it's fall now, which which is fine. <laughs> That's fine. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been slowly kind of learning everything that the library has to offer in terms of you know all the different crazy, um, you know it's it's. If if you like stop and go to the website, they're like, oh, by the way, like you can now log in and use the Consumer Reports website for free, and you can use this Ancestry website for free, and all this other crazy stuff. And it's sort of, uh, I can't believe they're just handing. I mean, I, I understand why people have problems with libraries; they're just handing away stuff for free all the time. It's just uh, <laughs> uh, that doesn't sound like capitalism to me. Uh, so I hate it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you hear it first folks nick hates libraries yeah but um speaking of libraries i did check out um copperhead volumes one and two uh from image comics uh written by jay oh boy jay farber 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 i think scott <laughs> godlewski on pencils ron riley on colors thomas mauer on letters um, so this is a series that began from Image in 2014, currently has four TPBs uh, and 19 issues out. Um, it kind of is in a bit of a holding position until the team isn't preoccupied with other projects right now, because it's supposed to hit 22 issues and then wrap. But, um, you know, these are these are the perils, I guess, of buying into a creator-owned series, right? You, you never know when, when or if they're going to take these little breaks and you know, but, um, yeah, so Fairber, uh, wrote for CW's Ringer, uh, CBS's Zoo, he also writes Elsewhere for Image, Godlewski pretty much, um, made his big splash with Copperhead, uh, but has kind of parlayed that into, um, that success into work at DC, Riley has just worked on other Fairber books, so the series is a space western, and it follows Sheriff Clara Bronson and her son Zeke, who have moved to Copperhead for a quote-unquote fresh start. Um, that's code for we'll find out who's chasing them in two trades. 
Um, if you're wondering if Copperhead is the place you want to be, uh, when you inherit the uniform of your dead predecessor, uh, your deceased pre- predecessor, uh, bullet holes and all, um, because they can't buy you a new one because of budget cuts, um, that pretty much tells you everything you need to know. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice touch. Uh, it kind of both informs you on, uh, the police budget as well as, um, how much fun it is to be a law enforcement officer in Copperhead. Um, some characters are pretty unique and interesting. There's basically a redneck family of Mike Wazowski's. If you made them about two and a half feet taller and had them uh, basically uh, all wearing tank tops. Um, okay. Other characters are pretty archetypy for a space western. You've got the evil Colonel Sanders, southern drawl um, looking dude who smooth who's a smooth talking motherfucker and he owns a mine and i'm sorry Mm -hmm. but you don't get to own a mine and be a good guy like (laughs) anyone who's out there looking for you know when they said like whatever shakespeare said there's only seven real narratives there's an eighth and it's a good guy who owns a mine so if you're looking for that eighth one that really hasn't been tapped no mine puns Mm -hmm. intended here um if you draw if you write a story about a good guy who owns a mine i think that that's that's it that's the i've cracked the code all right that's it we're done everyone let's close the show um (laughs) i mean beyond that yeah it's just a lot of archetypes you have the deputy whose name is Bud Roxafinicus, who just goes by mm. Boo for short. Thank God. Why is this book just a whole bunch of names I'm going to get wrong? Um, and, of course, he was used to being the sheriff before Clara rolled into town, and now he has to begrudgingly take on the role of the deputy. And will they work together? Won't they work together? Will there be some sort of a begrudging friendship over time? Of course there will. Of course there will. Uh, you know, it's got to follow the, the, the stereotypes of the genre. Um, it does like sort of play with other tropes like, um, the, the town having to round together a posse, um, to go take on this other, you know, bad guy. And you have the whole trope of the sheriff goes on a date with the school teacher, except in this case, the sheriff is a woman and the school teacher is a man. So there's a nice little inversion there, I guess. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's 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 pretty tropey, but it's fun. I I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I would I I would recommend this to other people. Um, the pencils kind of oddly remind me of Martin Morazzo's work on Ice Cream Man for some reason. Um, yeah, let me see. That pretty much yeah, I, I, wraps it. I remember this getting a lot of praise when it first came out, and it's one of those books that was in the filed away in the back of my mind to check out one of these days. So thanks for reminding me about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the world building, I'd say, is well-paced and organic. There's sort of a slow burn going on here. I would, I'd recommend it as, I mean, it's it's easy to say, like, it sort of checks all the boxes for Space Western, but I feel like in a lot of ways, once you say you're doing a Space Western, you've kind of already sort of put yourself in the box anyway, I right. guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> what a thing to say about space westerns when they, they're they so weird, yeah, but wait. it's like, at the same time, they're all weird in the exact same kind of way. Right. I mean, exactly. It's, it's kind of unfair to be like, oh, it seems like they sort of uh, checked all the boxes, but it's like, when you already say I'm doing space western, you've already sort of made a real niche there to begin with, and most of the right. people that like space western, they're all just trying to chase that firefly high anyway. They don't care. I disagree, <laughs> because I like space westerns, and I fucking hate Firefly. All right, wow. fine. Renee's in that 2% category. Great. Duly noted, Renee. <laughs> your your dissent has been uh, recorded for the record. Oh, I'm, I'm, if I actually get a bunch of hate for Firefly, I will actually be, like, super happy. You might. Well, you, you know might. where to contact us. So, listeners, if you have some Firefly-related hate. That, that's um, the thing. I always say, I was like, if you want to talk to me, even throwing shade at me, I'm totally fine with it. And nobody ever does, <laughs> which I feel like well, I'm a little disappointed, you know? I feel like you. I feel this is a big gauntlet being thrown down with the Firefly. <laughs> yeah, dismissal, I mean, so here's the thing. I've tried to watch Firefly. I've tried like four separate times, and I just, I just can't get into it. I'm right, there. Renee. I'll get, let you in a little secret. I'm right there with you. I made it three episodes and gave Dude, up. Dude, so. same. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what, what about you, uh, so, Paul? Yeah. What have you read? How are you doing? I, I'm doing well. Uh, yes, I think we're all. Uh, I'm enjoying the the 
short autumn period we're having here in West Michigan. Hopefully it lasts a bit longer than usual. Um, but in terms of comic books, um, I know it's my duty as the host of the show, filling in for Mike Rappin, I have to talk about X-Men number one. I did buy it. I did read it. Um, that's just who I am now. You know, I'm an X-Men fan. I, it feels weird to say <laughs> it out loud, what I am. but here I am. Trash. <laughs> exactly. X-Trash. Um, no, I, I really enjoyed uh, Hox Pox for all that it was, and I liked the, the fact that Hickman was able to craft a big world-building story that spoke to me as a new fan, um, or a relatively, you know, not well-versed X-Men fan, and someone like Mike, who's very well-versed. I think it worked for us for different reasons, but the fact we both enjoyed the book, I think that speaks to what Hickman was doing there. It appears so the only person one, it didn't speak to was Rob Liefeld, I guess. <laughs> oh, did he have some comments about that? Apparently, he went off the rails a few days ago, so we'll, well, you'll, you'll have to take a look into that. Oh, yeah, I can't wait uh, to hear what Rob says. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, X-Men number one. Jonathan Hickman's writing it. Uh, Lionel Francis Yu is on art uh, with Gary uh, Alan Guaylin on inks and Sonny Go on colors. Uh, this is the big launch of the new X-Men thing, the new status quo, and it felt very much like an X-Men book. It felt more like an X-Men comic than the Hoxpox stuff did, because this was kind of the quiet mm. period after all the world building where most of the issue is people getting together at Cyclops' house and having dinner and long conversations. I mean, I know that's kind of an X-Men trope, but just a lot of characters talking, you know, um, Thanks, Chris Claremont. But uh, I guess that's part of what the book is. I guess that's um, what I have to expect for, what I what I'm in, uh, have to expect. But I actually really enjoyed it. I think what Hickman's doing, you know, Hoxpox left the status quo in a weird place, I think, where there's a lot of questions to be answered. And obviously that's what the, I think, six ongoing books spinning out of it are going to address. But <laughs> um, there is something unsettling about the status quo. Like, there's something, you know, the X-Men are uncanny. There's something I can't quite put my finger on about this. And it's interesting that Cyclops especially and a lot, some of the other established characters don't seem to be bothered by the ethical questions or problems raised by Magneto and Xavier's plan. That may be mild spoilers for Hawksbox, but I guess anyone who wants to read it has already read it at this point. But I'm really stunned that there's feels like there's a huge... The other shoe's going to drop at some point, just a matter of when. And it makes the book very suspenseful in a not an obviously suspenseful way. Does that make sense? Whereas the characters seem to be acting out of character. I'm like, don't you have a problem with what's going on, but they never seem to address it. And they're either willfully or not ignoring these ma- major issues that are raised by the new status quo. So I guess that's sort of my way of doing a non-spoiler uh, recap of Hawksbox. I-, I noticed there was some grade A tiptoeing going on there, uh, Paul. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I- I'm sure anyone who's read it uh, will probably roll their eyes into the back of their head uh, to the point <laughs> that they'll have to go to urgent care when I ask this, but... Uh, being someone who is not privy to any of this, I, I still have yeah. to ask for, for, for the people, the listeners, if you didn't read Hawksbox, can you read right. this book or is it pretty much assumed you're going into this having read Hawksbox? You, yeah, it, uh, House of X, Powers of Ten is definitely a prologue to this. It's, you know, it's, it feeds into it in a pretty major way. Okay, um, it's going to be a real uphill know, battle if you don't. I would just say I would say so. Okay, based on you know, um, and I, well, I think that miniseries, but also the two miniseries, also establish a sort of aesthetic vibe that plays into this as well. I mean, it's a Jonathan Hickman comic. There are data pages that read like Wikipedia entries and stuff. There's a lot of you know background being built into it that I think you'd miss if you skip that mini to uh, get to this. So I wouldn't recommend it that to skipping right to X Men number one. Um, even though at first issue should stand on its own, I'm not sure if this one does. I was gonna say, I'm, I'm kind of confused because Xavier's alive again, and so is Cyclops. Uh, yeah, Gordon's oh, yeah. alive. They're back. <laughs> Sorry, They're, uh, I don't, I don't right. know who Gordon. I don't know what that reference is to. Flash Gordon, the movie. <laughs> Jeez, first Paul, Bonanza, right, now Flash Gordon. Yeah, Nick, you're really sort of aging our demographic Good here. So Lord. it's a. Uh, <laughs> Let's get to what the Sorry. kids are into. Let's talk about Judge Dredd. Um, 
Um, the other book I read this week was Judge Dread the Small House. And uh, regular listeners will probably remember that I've been very slowly making my way through the Judge Dread complete case files, uh, which collect all the Judge Dread stuff from all the way back to the late 70s. Um, just finished volume five. So that's the slow pace that I'm on. But um, this is actually a more recent Dread story. This collects a story from 2018, uh, last year, and then a couple uh, short prologue story from 2016 that leads into it. Uh, it's written by Rob Williams and art by Henry Flint, who have become a sort of major contemporary Dread creative team. And this book, this story, The Small House, really ties together a lot of the ideas that they've introduced into the Dread mythos over the past decade. And uh, it, it's really interesting because I think, Nick, you and I have talked about this on the podcast, that what makes Judge Dredd so fascinating is the fact it's a 40-year continuity that's never been rebooted or, you know, retconned The, the in aging way. in real time thing, yeah. Yeah. And so you have events that are still being referenced. So, like, in this book, there's you know, a character that, you know, is talking to Dredd and says, Dredd, Mega City 1 survived because of what you did during the day the law died, during the Apocalypse War, like, you fought off Judge Death, like all these classic stories are still part of the the whole story here. And this book actually fundamentally changes a couple of those stories. You find out new revelations about those stories that are like 35 years old. It's pretty amazing. But the main, I guess the, the sort of main plot here is that Dredd is overseeing a small team of judges who are investigating the uh, assassination of political leaders or pro-democracy leaders around the world. And, um, the thing is that Judge Dredd is sort of operating this covert team outside the, without the explicit knowledge of the chief judge. So he's kind of bending the rules a little bit himself, which is interesting for Dredd because he plays by the book more than anybody, and he gets called out on that. So, And then along the way, he realizes that the person behind, behind these assassinations you know, played a role in major events in Megacy 1 in the past. It really changes the context of the Apocalypse War. Which is oh. a story from like 1982. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> it completely changes the way Judge Dredd feels about that event. To be able to do that, you know, that's some pretty amazing heavy lifting. And I think that really, like, fundamentally changes the character and Mega City One in a really interesting way. The fact that they're able to do that with a 40 year old character without really having to reboot him, so to speak, is pretty amazing. It's a really, really good story. And I, I would say this is something that, even if you haven't read those classic Dredd stories, this is a really solid standalone Dredd story. You know, it's a really good character study. They do enough work to kind of explain the background of the stuff. I think you could enjoy it if you picked it up without having much knowledge of Dread. But if you do, it's a much deeper, more satisfying, you know, read. But I, I highly recommend this. I absolutely love this book. I, I'm actually pretty excited to go back and reread it after I've read a few more volumes of the Complete Case Files, see if there's even more connections that I'm missing on this first read. Is this technically an IDW or is this uh, a 2000 no. AD? 2000 AD, and Nick, you're going to hate it because the 2000 AD trade collection is a bigger size than a traditional comic book, so it's not going to fit in your long box if you pick it up. So, oh no, <laughs> no, I think that this book got so much praise when it came out. The story that I think 2000 AD basically fast tracked it to a trade collection, so it came out a few weeks ago, and I pre-ordered it when I saw it was coming up because I heard so much praise, and it, it deserves all the, all the praise it's getting. It's a fantastic dread story, so I'm very pleased that I read it. Fantastic, yeah. So um, those were the comics that were. Let's talk about future comics. Um, these are the books we're excited about this upcoming Wednesday, October 23rd. Uh, Nick, let's start with you. What are you excited for this week? For me, it would probably have to be the fact that the first trade of Invisible Kingdom is coming out. Um, this is a series from Dark Horse Comics, more specifically the Berger Books imprint, which unsurprisingly, is named after the fact that it's sort of a curated uh, thing by editor Karen Berger, previously of Vertigo, no longer a thing, obviously, so that's a deal. Um, so this is written by G. Willow Wilson. I haven't read much of her stuff. Obviously, she's gained a lot of praise for Miss Marvel, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. um, that's a Marvel book, I guess. I don't know. I don't hang out on that <laughs> side of the fence. But Whoa. people, I, sometimes people like fold up paper airplanes and throw them over the fence, and I, you know, I gather reports about Marvel that way, basically. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But the big thing for me is that Christian Ward is on art. Uh, that alone should be enough for most people. You could probably say. You could say, Nick, Christian Ward is, is drawing a book. And I'd be like, fine, <laughs> I'll read it. They'd be like, don't you want to know what it's about? Don't you want to know who's writing it? No, 
doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, that makes <laughs> Christian sense. Ward is drawing it. I'm sure it will be beautiful. Worst case scenario, it becomes a fantastic coffee table book. End of story. Um, but for those who are curious, uh, it's the story of two women in a distant galaxy, um, which according to the press junket summary is one's a fighter pilot, the other's a religious acolyte, and together they're going to uncover a conspiracy connecting the galaxy's dominant religion and corporation. So um, we're just checking every single box from politics to to, to religion to conspiracy theories to science fiction. Um, I think uh, everyone would probably be on board with this book. So what's funny is, of course, it sounds so much like a book that you would get an image but it's actually over at Dark Horse. So that's good on them, I suppose. Yeah, I remember this, you know, when this came out, getting praise as well. So it's I filed it away in my uh, memory to check out. I haven't read much of G. Well Wilson stuff either, but this might be the book to check out, especially since you have, you know, Christian Word artwork to, to look at as well. So Yeah, absolutely. Interesting, interesting. Uh, Renee, what are you excited for this week? Well, Paul, I'm excited for One Piece. Okay. I'm always excited for One Piece. Even the weeks where it's not coming out, I'm still always excited for it. <laughs> Especially sure. right now, chapter 959, for those keeping score. <clears throat> <laughs> We're uh, in the middle of the uh, Wano arc. It's Wano Act 3. Bam! Uh, very, very exciting. We've been waiting for this arc for a long time, and I know I've, I've talked about this before, and now we're kind of in the middle. And... Um, Ichiro Oda, the writer of One Piece, is uh, stylizing this entire arc kind of after a kabuki play. So it's uh, it's the speculation is that it's going to have about five acts, and we're on Act Three, and it just started, and it's just there's a lot of twists and turns, and a lot has already happened in this arc, and it just seems like it's just going to get better and better. So <sighs> One Piece. <laughs> always one piece there you have it folks yep there you have it folks one piece uh i've heard of it i did uh i don't is this a good jumping on point chapter 959 <laughs> <laughs> look here's the thing everyone's always really like kind of scared they're like oh man that's over 900 chapters each chapter is <laughs> only 20 pages long guys okay that's okay. not a lot so it's like it's like jumping onto action comics number 959 like a few you know, years ago, right? I guess. But here's here's the diff- here's the difference though is that like One Piece is a very big series, but you can still find volume number one in at like Barnes and Noble <laughs> at a comic book shop. Right. And here's the thing: it is v- a very good story, and you do want to read all of it. Everything there's the depth in all the characters, and I do mean all the characters, is amazing. The storytelling is done brilliantly. And here's the thing. You like want to read a story and then you're like, oh, man, it's over. or Oh, no, I've caught up or something like that after 10 issues or after one volume. Here's the thing. There's 959 <laughs> chapters, all of them available on Viz if you have their uh, yearly subscription. Only 25 bucks for the whole year. <clears throat> Anyways. Plugged on, but I feel like following that, we need to do a Squarespace ad. Like after Renee gave that, like but we need it's, to. It's this, so this has nice. to be followed with Squarespace. The thing is, you can read all those chapters. Yeah, uh, I mean, granted, yeah. you can't do it all in one day because they have a hundred uh, chapter a day limit, which is dumb. Um, <laughs> wow. But here's the thing: like that's there is so much to read. You don't have to sit down and digest it all in one day. But at the same time, yeah. knowing that you know you're not gonna just hit this wall. It's not just gonna suddenly end. You know, that's, right. that's kind of comforting, I think. No, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm kind of nip, like, kidding a little bit. You know, some of my favorite comics are ones that are, you know, 35, 40 years long, yeah. like Love and Rockets and Judge Dredd. And I think it's important to go back and read all that stuff. So mm-hmm. who knows? One of these days, maybe I'll jump on One Piece. I'll buy, you know, when they do the special, you know, issue 1000, I'll jump on, right? I mean, Polly, if we have a IRCB Christmas party or something, all of you are probably <laughs> getting One Piece Volume 1. Okay. Okay. There we I'll go. I'll shell out for that. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I guess the, thanks to Viz, you have the ability of marathoning it all at once or at least 100 chapters. But if you wanted, you could just, you know, start with one. And I, I know Renee's saying you probably couldn't just read one piece. You'd have to keep going. But <laughs> yeah, it's a funny who's on first type joke there yeah. with one piece. So. I mean, you could read only one piece. If you got it just for one piece, 
if you got if you got the the shonen jump thing or the viz thing just for one piece like i would still say that's a pretty good investment now doesn't one piece tend to get a lot of attention as well because it's sort of and again this is like a very much outside looking in on what i know about um manga um isn't it really one of the last big mangas that's still kind of going like nothing ongoing right now really comes close in terms of issue count right there's nothing even close to contending anymore in shonen jump no so one piece is 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 the last of the big three that has been published the big three being naruto one piece and bleach because they took the top three spots for about 10 years in shonen jump Hmm. um right but one piece is also one of the like best-selling manga around the world it's very recognizable as just it's the basically the biggest series since uh dragon ball hmm. and it's it's still it's still at the top and it's at the top by a long shot so i mean nick you are pretty much right but at the same time like jojos and and berserk they still and hunter hunter still bring a lot of views and votes and whatnot but i mean jojos and uh what was the other one i said <laughs> Jojo's and Berserk are in different are they're in different magazines. Yeah. So but those series have been going on for thirty years and uh One Piece just celebrated its twentieth, I think. I mean, I've heard of it. It must be a popular manga if even I've heard of it. Right, so, right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um as for me, this week I'm excited for Money Shot number one. Uh this is a new series from Vault Comics, written by Tim Seeley and Sarah Beattie. Art by Rebecca Isaacs and colors by Kurt Michael Russell. I'm assuming that's not the Kurt Russell. I'm assuming the Michael's there to, uh, you know, make that distinction. <laughs> um, <laughs> you never know. People branch out in weird ways. That You know, if Kurt Russell wants to color comics, God love him for doing it. Um, <laughs> anyway, this book is about a group of scientists um, who are... In the near future, they're trying to raise money for their research into teleportation devices, some space travel technology, and funds are low, and they sort of decide that the best way to raise money for these projects is to uh, meet aliens from other planets and film uh, adult films with them. So they're making space porn to raise money for their scientific research. Um, I don't know. This book looks really fun. I think Tim Seeley's a really good writer, and um, I, I think he can have a fun spin on this stuff. It looks like it's going to be, you know, more than just, you know, um, naughty bits. There's going to be some exploration into, you know, technology and funding and uh, relationship stuff. You have a group of people navigating alien sex, apparently, and uh, obviously going to be decidedly uh, adults only. Um, so some good body humor involved. I think Vault overall has been pretty good at curating a variety of different titles. I mean, all their books are very different and, uh, they're, um, dipping their toes into uh space porn, I guess is kind of, uh, appealing to me in some, some regards. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can show up for the space porn, uh, Paul, that's fine. I'm, I'm here for the perils of acquiring research funding. Like that's okay. Right. That's, that's, that's what I connect with. Cut out all the nudity. Just give me the the accounting bits, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm still the, the, the perils of, of of the tenure track and all of that. That's what I'm interested in. <laughs> right, balancing the spreadsheets as opposed to you know getting under the bed sheets. Um. Oh hey oh. <laughs> I'm still I'm, no this I'm uh still at dipping my toe in the space for it. <laughs> I think that's the title. I think that might be the title of the episode. Um, again. Uh, yeah, I don't know. This looks like a pretty fun book. I'm, I, I'm excited for it. Um, I, I, like I said, it looks decidedly adults only. Um, so, if, but if you don't mind some uh, ribald humor, I guess uh, check it out. Money shot number one. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> with that said, uh, we'll take a short break while Renee collects himself, and then we will come back for this episode's main topic, which is the issue of recoloring old comics. Uh, we'll be back shortly with that. For this week's main topic, we are going to be talking about recoloring comics, and uh, it might seem like a small issue, but it's really not. There's a lot of pros and cons to it, and it becomes a more important topic as we move into more comics being consumed digitally, recoloring old comics and uh, what that entails and if it changes the reading experience. So we're going to discuss all of this, or most of it, Um, so I'm just going to maybe start by opening up the, the... the discussion group here and see if you have any initial thoughts about this recoloring process. 
and um, whether it's important or not. Yeah, I mean, f- for me, I think the overall TLDR consensus is that um, it's not like an absolute yes, recoloring all the time, always recommended, right. always preferred, always makes things better, right? Um, and and on the flip side, although I, I, I definitely have a place where I stand, but uh, people have definitely argued the case that um, you should never do it, right? That right. Um, that you're never going to improve things. Uh, you're creating an act of erasure, basically. Well, yeah. I mean, it's almost like the controversy surrounding colorized movies. You know, if you remember back when um, Ted Turner was uh, proposing to do that on TM, TMC, whatever, uh, Turner Classic, TCM, Turner Classic Movies, like he bought all the rights of black and white films to air them on his cable channel. And like, he was going to recolor or colorize all these old black and white movies. And, you know, uh, film fans were shocked and, uh, you know, horrified by that prospect because it would radically change the reading experience or and the viewing experience. So, so Nick, uh, maybe very briefly, if you could maybe um, summarize some of the arguments, the, the arguments against any type of recoloring. I mean, what exactly is, because I'm of two minds on it. I think it's warranted in some cases and not in others, but what'd be sort of like a, a common argument against it? Well, um, certainly one of them is that the idea of recoloring basically, as I kind of hinted at earlier, is sort of an, an act of erasure. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a covering up in some ways to say, oh, well, that never happened, right? And if you're someone who's concerned about kind of the history of the medium, uh, flaws and all, warts and all, uh, you don't want that happening. Like, I remember reading something about how, um, well, generally speaking, first, you know, we, we talk a lot about how comics are unique in that they're, one, a collaborative medium, which of course means more variables, which means the potential for more mistakes, and it's a collaborative medium that's on a timeline most of the time. It's on a pretty right. tight timeline. And so mistakes happen, quote-unquote mistakes happen, but they're part and parcel of what what comics are, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so to try to um, cover that up um, is kind of destroys part of what makes the medium what it is. Uh, right. and, and yeah, I've, I've read some people saying, well, what's the harm when your colorist from the sixties is trying to follow a color guide and he accidentally, Wolverine is supposed to have a glove and he accidentally paints the hand, a skin tone, and now he's no longer wearing one of his gloves. What's the <laughs> harm in going back and fixing that? And I understand where people are coming from when they say, oh, it was such a dumb, inconsequential mistake. And it's kind of looks glaringly stupid why would why wouldn't you just try to you know fix that yeah, and yeah. when you fix that you sort of yeah wolverine looks correct now but you're also removing that characteristic that these sort of things happened you're you're erasing an event in a way yeah yeah and you know coloring is one of those things that i i think thankfully in the past you know couple decades, it's become more recognized as such an integral part of the medium. But yeah, in the 60s and 70s, it was kind of an afterthought. You had, people were very good at it, but like you said, they're following the color guide. There wasn't as much of a sort of, um, it wasn't viewed as being as artistic, as a, an important artistic component as it clearly is. That makes sense? So to that argument, um, recoloring, when they digitize old comics and they have to maybe update the colors or fix mistakes, you know, it, that's... I think that it's a continuation of that mentality. Maybe that's the same argument that you're sort of paraphrasing there. Is that it's a continuation of this idea that the coloring is just a sort of necessary evil, so to speak. You know, it's the last step in the process, and it's clearly an important one because when it it doesn't work, it's very noticeable. But maybe you lose sort of the the um, the nuance or the the unique personalities that those colors had when they were doing that back in back in the sixties. You know, and and one of the arguments, of course. I've seen for when is it okay to recolor I see is that 
if you're going to do that, you need to at least consult the original creative team. Exactly. Now, the tricky exactly. thing, as you were getting at, is that what's being recolored prominently? Well, it's a lot of 60s comics. It's a lot of 50s and, yeah, 50s and 60s comics, where in a lot of situations, you probably don't even have the luxury of getting a hold of one person who's on that creative right. team. So then it begs the question, well, what do you what do you do in that situation, right? Um, and then Marvel says, we make money, you big dingus. We're <laughs> publishing the book. <laughs> right. I was actually going to say that, but I, yeah. I think Nick put it more eloquently than I could. <laughs> yeah, that's an imp- yeah that, that brings to mind one of the big examples that made me think of this topic when I proposed it was a few years ago when um, DC re-released a trade collection of Batman Year One to coincide with the animated film that they put out. They had the book, um, they printed the new trade on glossy paper, which the original, even the original trade collection from the late 80s and when it was reprinted in the 90s, it was never on, it was always on matte paper. And then they, the file, color files that they used for the new reprint were sort of corrupted or they were, weren't as focused as the original files. So when that book came out, David Mazzuccelli actually was telling people that he was telling fans not to buy the new version of the book. He said, yeah, this new Batman Year One trade collection, it completely obscures the original coloring that Richmond Lewis did on Year One, and it completely changes the look of the book. So that's an example of recoloring a book without the guidance of the creative team, and it fundamentally changes the book to the point where the creative team is saying, yeah, don't buy it. You know, it's not worth my royalties for you to like, have a, um, an inferior version of the story, you know? And uh, I think that, I mean, I have year one, I think I have a collection that was printed in the early 2000s, and it's still on the matte paper, it has the original coloring. But I guess, you know, whatever edition came out, I think maybe four or five years ago was, you know, viewed as being, um, you know, a, a, basically a, a an inferior version of the of the comic. So it, I think that was really interesting. And in fact, if I remember correctly, I think Richmond Lewis actually recolored the comic for the original trade collection back in the late 80s. So that's kind of the definitive version of the book. And any type of recoloring is, in fact, a sort of erasure of the, his hand coloring that he did for that that first collection. Hmm. I, I literally was just like about to pick up. I, I was in uh, Best Buy the other day and they were, they were doing <laughs> like they're selling the, the movie with the trade. But it was a seal. Yeah. It was sealed so that you couldn't like just you know take out the DVD or, or leave the trade or whatever. I don't know who would do that. Some okay. monster or something. But <laughs> I was right. like, I was like, I wanted to know what version of it because I knew that there were different versions uh, based on the coloring and whatnot, and also the paper. So I was like, <laughs> I can't tell how what this trade is yeah. going to be like. So I don't want to get it and you know just yeah maybe have this thing. And I, I guess that was the first time I've really kind of really thought about. Um, like consciously thought about like how picky I am with trades and like, especially if they're older comic books and how they've been distributed or how they've been packaged. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point, you know, cause, because I do think that I haven't seen this recolored one, but I mean, it must've been pretty glaringly different to have the penciler say, don't buy it. You know what yeah. I mean? And um, it also raises the question of coloring now, recoloring comics and reprinting them with a different paper stock a lot of those old comics weren't colored with glossy paper in mind. They were the colors were designed for newsprint or matte paper, and they don't translate well to glossy paper. So, I think it's interesting that DC again over the past few years, when they've been recollecting the '70s stuff that Kirby did, a lot of the trade collections are on matte paper. That's not glossy paper at all, and it really captures the original colors a lot better than any glossy paper reprint would. So that's stuff you don't really think about until you're actually holding the physical copy. And you yeah, see it, right? I just I just did something similar with uh, Infinity War and uh, the Return of Superman. It was I saw that they mm-hmm. had even though it was a new edition, it was a reprint. They had still stuck to the matte paper, and I it kind of still also had like I remember, you know, seeing single issues of this when I was a kid, and it's got that same vibe. And it's like if it had the glossy, I don't know if I would have been interested in buying it, which I guess shows my own bias towards recoloring yeah i I think that speaks to a larger issue we keep coming back to is this idea that any type of change feels like you know it's it's really you want to have something an experience as close to the original as you can Mm -hmm. now i guess what i'm trying to say right the 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 same 
experience as someone who bought your one off the rack, the individual issues when it came out, you kind of want that same experience. I think if you're going back to read a classic book like that, so yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if it's it fits just because like, oh, I like this style or I like that, or it's you want to recapture the feeling you had when you first read that story as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's something about the aesthetic of a comic book in the 80s that I think is a part of the reading it. Even if you're reading it now, 30 years down the road, you kind of want to have that same experience. You know, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's an intangible thing. Again, like I said, um, it, you only really notice it or think about it until you actually have the book in your hand. So um, speaking to that, there's another example I have where uh, a few years ago, DC did a collection of uh, Flex Mentallo. So they collected the Graham Morrison and Frank Quietly story in a really nice hardcover collection. The book had been out of print for years and years due to legal issues, but they recolored it and they recolored it with a very modern contemporary color palette. And it's not that the book is that old. I think Flex Mattel came out in like, you know, um, very late nineties, early two thousands. But even that, you know, 15, 16 year, year gap, uh, the uh, paper stock and the coloring technology changed enough where they were able to recolor it, but it they gave it such a muted color like uh, palette that the book it you know the originals are vibrant and colorful and the the deluxe edition it's very like muddy looking and like it, it really changes the way the story feels right it looks bleak at moments where the original is sort of bright and colorful and it's really off putting again like I. I bought the collected edition and I was reading it and I was like, this looks different. And then, uh, you know, I pulled out my original copies and like, yeah, sure enough, this is a radically different book due to the recoloring. And I even remember there being an, a controversy. There's one scene where in the original Flex Metallo, there's like one panel where you see some people at a party and um, they have a you know darker skin complexion. And in the reprint, they've lightened the skin complexion of those characters. There are people in the background. They're not like important characters. They're just like, you know, background uh people standing there but it, it's very strange that you'd, you'd recolor something to that degree where you know the skin tone is different for these random characters it felt like a weirdly weird choice so hmm. i guess what i'm saying if you get your hands on the original flex mentality issues do that instead so those are the examples i have of coloring not working but yeah you know obviously there are examples where it does work or it, it, it might be uh, uh, an important choice to make because didn't didn't um, Neil Gaiman do that with Sandman? Like they recolored it, but like he colored it the way he wanted to. Was that? Am I remembering that right? Um, I mean, yeah, it, you sort of have the the right idea. And again, I, I, this is how I understand it. So when the absolute, when the versions of the absolute Sandman started rolling out in like '06, and those are those massive like hundred and fifty dollar volumes. Yeah, there was sort of an effort to. Uh, recolor and and most specifically recolor the first 18 issues or basically the first three volumes at least because as what was it as Gaiman wrote basically he said yeah that with with production changing and improving that he really didn't yeah the original technology means that with every new printing on cleaner paper with sharper inks it looks worse uh, there was never the time or the money to fix anything in the old days, and stuff simply went out as it was, sometimes to the detriment of the story. Um, now, again, I don't totally agree with Gaiman uh, in the sense that, yeah, like, there were imperfections, but that's just what happened, and that's that's not something you can kind of wash over, right? But the yeah. fact that they brought back one of the original colorists um, to do it, uh, and the fact that, at least from their argument in this article by Comics Alliance, they said that actually improving the color to more um, precision rather than just, I don't, I don't remember the term, for when they sort of just kind of generically color a f just a whole area, just uh, um, mm -hmm. that it actually makes the pencils uh, pop out better. That the the color isn't just sort of washing over it just completely. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's tricky stuff. Like, I think one of the perfect examples of, like, how messy of an issue can this be, right, is um, The Killing Joke by Alan Moore and Brian yeah. Bland, right? So, mm -hmm. Bland, uh, decades later, decides that he's going to recolor the book 
or maybe someone from DC gets on the phone and says, do you want some money? Uh, <laughs> who knows exactly how it played out, but <laughs> at least from what I've heard, there was some agency on Balan's part and he was eager to recolor it. Um, he did not actually do the colors the first time around. It was John Higgins, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, how do you, what, what do you do when, when the, when someone from the creative team wants to have this revision and, and what comes out is a, a very different looking book, much like your Flex Mentallo. It's uh, yep. muted grays and browns versus like, um, you know, bright reds and, and pinks and things like this. And, and I think ultimately a lot of it, seemingly a lot of this recoloring is frequently a shift from more impressionistic color choices, largely sometimes based on limitations, to mm-hmm. to literal liter- literal choices, which is interesting. Um, Matt Wilson, in an article for Comics Alliance called Is a Recolored Comic Still the Same Comic? He wrote that he thinks some recolorings are too literal. Uh, they're committed to making things the colors that they would really be, rather than something more abstract that sets a mood, something old comics coloring had in spades, possibly to make up for limited options, right? Yeah, that's a good example. And, and you know, as we're talking about this, I, I keep thinking that instead of recoloring comics uh, from the, you know, say, 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, there might be a good argument to, make, to be made that maybe we should be recoloring those books from the uh, early 90s to mid 90s where they're experimenting with digital coloring and it, the experiments didn't quite work. You know, I read a lot of bad early image books where they're experimenting with computer coloring and digital coloring and that thing where you have almost have too many options and too many tools in your toolbox where you like overthink stuff, you know, having that stuff sort of stripped down and put back in a more sort of subtle or uh, you know simplified manner might be more appealing than recoloring, you know, the killing joke or, you know, uh, Batman Year One, for example, you know. Oh yeah, totally. Um, if if I mean the hard part there is, I think asking if people want to reread those '90s books. I think that's where, <laughs> I think that's where the rubber right. meets the road. But uh, is there a big, yeah, big demand for some, you know, remasters, some absolute editions of Profit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or Young Blood? I mean, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think that's. I think what's really interesting is that you know I. Th- the idea that it only really works if you're able to consult the original colorist or someone that was involved with it, right? You know, the idea that if you're simply recoloring something just to do it, that makes the colorist's job feel inconsequential or interchangeable. But when you're able to approach a creator and say, we want to do a new edition of this book, what what is going to serve the story the best in your eyes? Like, that seems like an acceptable way around that issue. Um, and another issue here that I see in our notes is that uh, books that were originally in black and white, which I think is an even more interesting topic, the desire to republish black and white comics in full color um, for reasons other than just selling another copy of the book, right? What, what's the impetus for recoloring something like Scott Pilgrim or Bone that has been published in color or uh, From Hell? Like, what is the desire to go back and revisit those books in color? I'm not quite sure I, I buy the, their necessity. Or buy the books, so to speak. Right, right. And and obviously the no-brainer answer, of course, is... Well, the, the real cynical one is it's it's another excuse to, to resell the book, right? Right. The slightly, slightly less cynical one would be um, that color sells and that with younger audiences, with n- younger readers, with newer readers, um, color helps, Right. I mean, yeah. if, if, if you try to sit a kid down in front of a TV these days and make them watch a black and white TV show or a black and white movie, that's, for better or for worse, not going to help your case, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Yeah. And I think for a lot of these publishers, they're like, yeah, we would love for people to reread Thor, but with those colors or whatever, it's not going to happen. Or, um, and I mean, people, yeah. publishers have made this decision decades ago, like when when DC got their hands on V for Vendetta and they republished it. Yeah, um, that's true. They went ahead, I think from Rebellion Comics was the name, um, Rebellion Magazine or whatever that was. They they just went right ahead and uh, just recolored that when they did it. So, or I mean, just colored it, period. They didn't recolor it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that's kind of that's interesting too because there have been a lot of comics that I've read in black and white, but when you see the color versions, it doesn't quite feel right. You know, I'm thinking of buying those like big those big phone book sized collections that DC did, like the showcase collections, where it's printed on the like cheap um, newsprint and it's all black and white, but they're black and white prints of comics that are originally in color. But the way I read them the first time was in black and white. But when I find the original issues and flip through it, I'm like, this feels really different in color. You know, it's such a different reading experience. That feels more of a radical change than just simply recoloring a book with updated technology, right? The shift from black and white to color is a huge leap in my mind. Yeah. And that, like, sometimes it just, it feels almost, it feels like, like you're almost like watching or, or like you're reading something completely different. Like it's, uh, I always get the feeling that it's like I'm reading someone's coloring book. <laughs> like that's how yeah, I felt about yeah. the colored Scott Pilgrim, which is why I <laughs> didn't buy it. Uh, Cause sure. I was just like, I don't know if I wholeheartedly agree with these colors. And that's a person, that's a personal oh, okay. thing though. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I also, I really, and this is probably just because of the amount of manga that I read. I really like, um, black and white, but also a lot of the time the, sh- the original shading in the black and white story will get taken out or they'll change it to a different color. And it sort of changes the tone of the panel when you take just that yeah. initial shading or that inking and, you know, it's not just black or like empty white and it becomes like a blue or like a magenta. And you're like, well, that was a really interesting uh, choice. Um, or uh, I know that uh, there's a manga that I read a uh, Hajime no Ippo, which is a boxing manga and there, the artist does all these huge sweeping movements to of following where the boxers are, are punching and shows, you know, the effect that it has on the air around them and whatnot. And if it was colored, like, how would you, how would you mix like the way that the wind swirls around the glove or around their punch or around the mat itself? Like, how do you transition that to be? in color when technically like it's just wind it should be see-through do you do the background or whatnot it just kind of loses something in the storytelling it goes from being able to feel that power to just kind of like and that's a punch yeah that's that's really interesting i think that's that kind of speaks to why i want to you know bring this topic up to discuss why i think that a lot of artists you know they're working within limitations you know if a book is if you're working on a small budget and you don't have can't afford color. That's going to make your that's going to dictate a lot of your artistic choices when you're you're drawing the book, right? So to translate that to color, that feels like a big change. And you know, if if the artist themselves is cool with that and they oversee it, like I'm sure that you know this recolored from hell that um, Eddie Campbell's doing, like I'm sure it's interesting. But it again, the original artwork was designed to be in black and white. So the choices he made originally, like. You know, yeah, with like are they pen, gonna, are they gonna with be like really changed? thin pen too? You know, yeah, I, I don't know. I've ever read any Eddie Campbell work that's in color. I think everything I've ever read by him is in black and white. I can't even imagine what it looked like in color. So I'm I'm cautiously I'm curious about this recolored from hell. You know, in that regard, yeah. it's it's always interesting when when it's something's drawn because they know it's going to be in black and white, and then someone tries to color it, especially if they've molded their style to sort of fit that like the, uh, the author for Yu Yu Hakusho and we were just talking about him uh, in between the break, but so he, he falls ill a lot just from his business and, and you know, from what he does. And I think just, he's got health issues just in general, but he actually worked that into his drawing style where his backgrounds are very minimalistic so that he can just mm-hmm. be like, you know what? I just need to focus on this one thing. We're not going to even worry about it. But he moved his style around that. And so it's like you have a lot of these just kind of blank backgrounds that fit the tone of the book in black and white. And then when you watch the anime, you're like, why is there just a green color behind him? Why is it just... Right. Yeah. And it's it doesn't... It kind of... It doesn't like hurt the story at all necessarily, but it still feels off. Because it wasn't originally yeah. meant to transition that way, even though animes m- are often meant to be in color. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's again, it's it's an interesting topic, and it's hard to really put your finger on it because it's color feels like such. 
it's an intangible thing, you know, because when it works, you don't really notice it. When it works well, you don't quite, you know, it doesn't stand out. It only really stands out when it's, you know, radically different or bad. So, you know, it, so I think it's an interesting topic. And I think we've kind of come down on the um, squarely on the fence on this one, right? Because it's sometimes there's examples when it's a bad choice to recolor a book. And there's other examples where I think it's the right choice. So I guess it comes down to the book itself and the creators themselves making that decision. And we as readers, you know, whether we want to buy it or not. So Yeah. And I think there's no harm in, in buying both or even reading both. Like, um, I know yeah. that... Um, and this isn't a comic book, but it's a comic book movie. Logan, the film, had both mm-hmm. a color version and they had a black and white version. And, I mean, granted, yeah. it came all on one disc. And if only we were so lucky, it was like, hey, just buy one one trade. It's got both versions. <laughs> but I think that I don't think <laughs> yeah. there's anything wrong with purchasing it and looking at it, you know, and just being like, oh, that's a thing. I mean, again, unless, <laughs> unless like, you know, the... Uh, if the original creators have offended by it, you know, like with the Bam Hanger yeah. one, in which case they'll be like, ah, you know, maybe support if you feel like it, support the, uh, the artist that you respect. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm now thinking of more examples like the, when DC did the, um, you know, reprinted Batman hush with, that was just Jim Lee's pencils, or I have a book of, you know, Kirby comics that have been republished when you just see the inks and pencils without any color. And it's more of a sort of, interesting experiment rather than a replacement for the original comic in my eyes if that makes sense you know it's just here's another take on this i'm looking at it as a sort of coffee table book or an art book as opposed to reading the comic as i did originally right. and they, so. i've even seen a couple comics where they're like hey it's like a coloring book version but it's the actual comic mm-hmm. it's like but you can color it the way you want to which i feel is a very right. dangerous thing <laughs> <laughs> sure but uh yeah uh, Nick, do you have any uh, final thoughts to wrap up before we uh, call it quits here? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the biggest thing that worries me about all of this, and we've just kind of touched on it a little, is that you can say, oh, you can like the new version, you can like the old version. What worries me um, is the fact that some people are just going to be not even aware that what they're seeing is changed or revised. Right. That to some people, they're completely unaware that there are two versions, that this is a revised version or whatever. Um, none of these books seems to seem to really ever go out of their way and say, oh, it didn't originally look like this, or this book has been remastered. It just says Batman Year One, and to the average reader right. or whatever, that's, that's what they were recommended or whatever, and that's what they're going to go pick up, and so they're none the wiser. And so, yeah, I mean... I understand why Marvel says, oh, we're going to redo, we're going to remaster Howard Howard Chaykin's run on Star Wars, uh, and we're going to make Darth Vader have black armor because green and blue is goofy and the kiddos aren't going to like that. But right. for me, yeah. it's so bizarre. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, I'm not going to put up with that. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't He's know if you've seen this. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've seen this. This is probably what caused the last big recoloring debacle was um Chaken Star Wars, but it's it's terrible. Yeah. Give me give me green Darth Vader every day of the week. Like there's a reason that it's colored that way originally. It's an artistic choice, you know. And um But I, I think that people that are passionate about comics are aware of that. Like I feel like people that, you know, are are devoted consumers and really care about the the medium as an art form are going to seek out the original, right? Are going to be aware of the changes. So, you know, I, I just think it's an interesting topic because it feels like a minor thing, but it does, like I keep saying, radically change your experience of the comic. And it's something to, I, I find myself thinking about a lot when I'm reading older comics have been recolored. Yeah. So. And it's, it's weird. Cause it's not, it's not a, we're not having this conversation about having someone re-inking a book. We're not having right. this conversation about giving a, a penciler the same script and redrawing a whole book. Mm-hmm. Right. Like those aren't conversations we're having. We're largely just having this conversation about recoloring a book. And I think that that yeah. says a lot about what people think about, colorists i think implicitly that says a lot 
It does, definitely. And I think it's an opinion that's changing. I think, uh, like I said earlier, the attitude toward the importance of the colorist is something that's you know, become more respected in, in, for a lot of creators and a lot of uh, publishers. So um, I'm going to wrap things up here and I'm going to just ask the listeners that if they have any other examples of recolored comics that they want to share with us, they can do that. Uh, and there's a number of ways they can contact us. Uh, Twitter is a big one. Uh, we're all on there. Nick is at Death Star Plans. Renee is at Rodriguer29. And I am at Ohi Polly. And of course, the show itself is on Twitter at IRCB Podcast, where we share comic book news, art, and a variety of other things. We would love it if you would go ahead and subscribe on Patreon. That's at patreon.com forward slash IRCB podcast. Without your support, this show wouldn't survive. If you join now, you can get access to exclusive audio, articles, previews of our schedule, early access to top of my pile posts. You can get your episode a whole day early and so much more. Uh, There's also our Goodreads group. It's a lovely community of comic friends and we have weekly threads. Uh, One of this week's threads is 80s vibes and cartoon nostalgia which uh, Kara posted uh, involving uh, 80s cartoons and the comics that they bring to mind. You can check that out at ircbpodcast.com forward slash goodreads. Head over to ircbpodcast.com for a pronunciation guide, Discord server, zines, merch, and everything else IRCB. If you haven't already, please rate and review our show on iTunes and all the other places that you're maybe listening to us. Uh, And you know what? Maybe we'll read your review on our next episode. You can email the show with what you've been reading, recipes, corrections, and anything else at ircbpodcast at gmail.com. Infinity Shred is the best band in the world. They also happen to do the music for our show. Xander, he invokes the feeling of catching the bus the minute it arrives and finding the perfect seat for that 45-minute commute you had ahead of you. He also edits the show. Thank you to Nick and Renee for joining me. Thank you to Mike for letting me, uh, tossing me the keys to the car, so to speak, and letting me drive this podcast off the cliff. (laughs) Until next time, thank you to the listeners. Until next time, comics are good, and so are you. really thrown by the xander feeling of catching the bus <laughs> i i really didn't i mean i get what he's getting at but it's really difficult to read that you know say it i know that's a really so. that was like that's a mike rapping ramble that is like mm-hmm. something only the rapping can pull you know and i'm just like what i also just wonder if he runs that's... these by xander first and xander's like i don't know if i agree with that oh i don't think he does <laughs> i think if he tried oh, xander would completely like <laughs> Shut all that shit down. (laughs) For sure. Yeah.